Uh, for the rest of us, how's everybody doing? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, anybody seen the Matrix? All right. Nobody? Nobody seen the Matrix? Okay. All right. We got a few hands. Okay. Okay. So people have seen the Matrix. Um, if you've seen the Matrix, then you remember there was, um, at the heart of, at the heart of the story was this kind of, um, this groundbreaking twist, so to speak, where, where, um, the, the, the character, the, the, the main character by the name of Neo, who was played by Keanu Reeves, is living what considers to, what what most of us would consider to be a fairly normal and pedestrian life um in the daytime he he works you know just for a very normal and pedestrian company and in the evening he is some rogue computer hacker and all of a sudden these people strange characters who are wearing strange outfits show up in Neil's life and say they have some secrets that they would like to share with him, secrets about the life that he's living. And when they begin to share those secrets, uh, the character who's played by, the, by Lawrence Fishburne, uh, his name was Morpheus. He has these two pills, or uh, he has these uh, two pills in his hand, one being red, one being blue. I pray that uh, everybody in here has seen it because I'm about to give the twist away, right? Uh, so hopefully, but it's been like 20 years, so if you haven't seen it, too bad. But nevertheless... Red pill, blue pill, hey, which one you want to take? Neo, I can't remember which one he takes, but whichever one he takes, takes him down, so to speak, into the rabbit hole. And he finds out that the life that he is living is um, not even a real life. It's, it, it's a fake life. He is actually living a simulated life, and underneath that life that he is living is the real world. There is a totally different world where... Th- where all sorts of things are happening and wars are being waged and battles are being fought and Neo was completely and totally oblivious to it, just living his life on the surface of the simulated simulated uh, life that was created on his behalf and he was, lo and behold, just being used as a battery, literally being used as a battery to fuel artificial intelligence. And I know I'm blowing y'all away and taking y'all too deep into the story. But the point is that Neo was living this life and he was for sure that this was the real life, that this is what life was all about. And underneath that was an entirely different life that he had no clue was going on around him, but very much involved him and very much was essential to his well-being. That's you. That's you. Because most of us live this life on the level of the physical and on the level of the natural, and we're constantly thinking about natural things and dealing with relationships in a natural way and handling suffering and persecution from a natural vantage point and handling hardship and handling wrongdoing that's done against us in natural ways. And the reality is, is that there's this surface underneath all of us that impacts you, that involves you, that is very much tied to your destiny, that is very much tied to your well-being. And yet you ignore it. So many people ignore it. 
even the people that say that they are not ignoring it, ignore it. There's what we call the natural life, which is the matrix simulation. But then there is the spiritual life, which is actually the most important part of the life. And in the spiritual life, there's all sorts of things that are happening and battles being fought and, wa- and, and wars being waged. And, and, and so many of us are so oblivious to all of that. We're just, we're just living our lives in the matrix Nobody's bothering us, so to speak, so we aren't bothering anybody. And so when I walk through Acts chapter 23 and when I walk through Acts chapter 24 and, 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 and we, we just walk through this together, what I noticed is that there is very much all sorts of things happening beneath the surface that are worth our attention and our thought. Does that make sense? Matt gave us a springboard. We're actually covering two chapters in 30 minutes this morning, but Matt gave us a springboard into, into these two chapters. If you recall, Paul has um, been dealing with the reality of entering into Jerusalem as he has felt compelled to do by the Spirit of God and now being confronted with all sorts of trouble, all sorts of trials, all sorts of persecution now that he has arrived. The crowds hate him. They're putting him in the courts. They're they're accusing him of all sorts of wrongdoing that he has really not done. And here the story is continuing. Matt gives us a peek into that story where, where now he is in front of the Sanhedrin council. And in front of this Sanhedrin council, this group is saying now that Paul is... Stirring up trouble, stirring up riots, he needs to be disciplined. And this is where we begin to, to pick up all of the beneath the surface elements and happenings that's going on as we read through the text. Let me share something with you. Here's the first point. Spiritual evil manifests itself in everyday life. Spiritual evil manifests itself in everyday life. When you read through the account of Paul, as he's making his continued defense in the midst of harsh opposition, there are two bits of truth that come clear. One is this, spiritual evil manifests itself in everyday life. But also the other point is that spiritual good manifests itself in everyday life. Understand that Paul cannot catch a break at this point. Whether it be from leaders or whether it be from everyday citizens, whether it be from councils of, uh, in Rome or councils of Rome or whether it be from councils in Jerusalem, Paul is being heavily afflicted, but his affliction is not without spiritual origins. We find in Paul's opposition the same thing that we find in all of our opposition to some degree. We find the reality that there is a spiritual enemy that is working to destroy the work that God is bringing to pass and producing in Paul. I say that not because it's necessarily explicitly in the text. I say that because Paul says it. Paul says it in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. He says this, 
Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's not my words. That's the same man's words that's going through all the natural chaos that he's going through. And yet he sources the natural chaos and spiritual origins. He says all of this, these trumped up charges, these liars, these people that are hating on the work that God is doing, these plate, these, all of this has a source in the spirit. So what we must first understand is that Paul has enemies, but behind those enemies are his real enemies. And his human enemies have their agenda and their reasons for stopping this work, but his real enemy has the ultimate agenda, which is to cast a shadow, cast shadows on the glory of God and, and cast shadows on the glory of God by obstructing the spread of the gospel and, and to, and to, and by blocking God's people or blocking people from accomplishing God's will. See, as a Christian, if we don't understand that, see, as a Christian, if you don't understand that the war that is being waged and the battles that you are fighting or not with your boss primarily, not with your spouse primarily, not with that church member primarily, but that the battles and the wars that you are fighting are surfacing beneath the natural. And that, and that they extend beyond human conflict more often than we would ever acknowledge. And that they are way more spiritual than more often we would ever realize. See, the spiritual enemy in these fights has as its, has as his ultimate goal, Satan, the devil, has as his ultimate goal, the casting of shadow on God's glory. The obstruction of the gospel from being proclaimed in the lives of those around you. The destruction of his will from being accomplished in your life. And if you don't understand that, you will wage war in ways that are unhealthy. Part of the reason that Paul, as you walk through chapter 23 and as you walk through chapter 24, part of the reason that Paul is addressing everything in the way that he does is because he understands where the battle is actually being fought. See, no matter what else is going on in all of the conflict, at the heart of the conflict is Satan and his agenda. And the same can be said for your life is that no matter what's going on in your life, whatever, whatever opposition, whatever evil, whatever, whatever unrighteousness you feel, whatever injustice you feel is at work in your life, at the heart of that evil, at the heart of that unrighteousness, at the heart of that injustice is a real devil at work. And if you don't turn your focus there, instead of making all your focus the people that have wronged you, you will enter into that battle wrongly. Let's talk a little bit about the spiritual good that manifests itself in the everyday. There's an old poem called Foot 
prints. Anybody ever heard of footprints? They used to sell them, used to sell these pictures, footprint pictures at like the beauty supply shop, just random places like that, right? You go in there and you get perm and then you get a footprint picture while you're there. But nevertheless, the footprint picture was a poem. And, and this poem is a, is a fairly old poem that's, that's told by, by this, this woman who, who is having, she's describing this dream that she's having. And she said this dream is, is, this dream is, is sharing these seasons of her life and sharing these scenes from her life. And, and in these scenes from her life, there are footprints of her, her footprints and God's footprints walking together through these scenes and through these seasons of her life. But she's, but she noticed that through the most difficult and darkest and harshest moments of her life, that there were only one set of footprints. And so she goes to God and she says, God, why did you leave me when life was the most tragic? And why did you leave me when life was the harshest? And why did you leave me when life was the ugliest? Her, and, and God's response to her is that, daughter, I've never, I would never leave you, nor would I forsake you. During those times where you saw one set of footprints, it was me that was carrying you. Now, here's what's interesting about that, is that the poem, while beautiful, gets the truth half right. Because, see, here's the reality, is that God is always carrying you. So there is, there, again, we're talking about what's happening at, above the surface and what's happening beneath the surface. And, and I'm setting all of this, and I'm actually going somewhere, so give me a second. But I'm setting all this so that we can talk about a few of these things quickly that Paul goes through. So spiritual good is God basically carrying you always through the everyday, through the mundane, through the routine, through the highs, through the lows. God being ever present with you in the midst of the spiritual evil that is present. The injustice, the evil, the, the harsh treatment of you, the lying, the, the backbiting, the, the, what, what, the suffering that you experience, the bills, the bills, uh, the lack of finances, whatever you're experiencing in terms of hardship, those things that are seeking to destroy your faith and seeking to destroy your witness and your testimony of God's goodness and grace and his gospel. That that's real, but so is God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, carrying you. That's real as well. These two things are real in your life every day, whether you realize it or not, whether you're paying attention to it or not. And just like that evil that works around us that sometimes we don't understand and see the source of it, God is the same way. Sometimes we don't understand and see God carrying us through our lives. Here we see in this text that conspiracy is at work, trumped up charges are at work, Satan is doing all sorts of things to destroy the work of God in this man by the name of Paul. And yet, God is carrying him. The book of Esther is a lot like this text. The book of Esther never mentions God. The entire book, God is never mentioned. And yet, when you look at the book of Esther, you see God all through it from beginning to end. 
You see God present stirring the hearts of the kings. You see God moving the opposition that, that is coming against Esther, moving that opposition aside. You see God shaping each scenario and sequence for his divine purpose and his divine will. Dr. Tony Evans talks about uh, in his sermon series on the book of Esther, he describes the idea as seeing the invisible hand of God. And he challenges the listener to stop and take note of God's fingerprints in your life the moments where he was present even when he didn't even when you didn't see him visibly or hear him audibly and this is one of Paul's Esther moments the hand of God is not literally seen and the voice of God is not literally heard but through and through we know God is there one reason we know God is there because he tells Paul that he's going to be there we hear these words in in verse 11 of chapter 23 look at this for me The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must also, so you must testify also in Rome. These are the words that are similar to the ones that the poet recites as she is walking through this dream. And she says, God, where were you? And he says, I was always here. Through the hardships, I may seem distant, but I am present. Take courage, Paul. I am here, and I am here carrying you. Take courage, Paul. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Remember, Paul is here in this moment based on the words of the Spirit. The Spirit tells him to go, and the Spirit tells him that suffering is coming. But I'm sure, just like any other normal person, the suffering can take its toll. This journey has been bumpy so far. People are, people are hating him left and right. They're tossing from one place to the next, putting him in front of different courts. Paul has borne witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for that, he has not been well received. All he has done is what God has called him to do, and he has faced nothing but trouble for it. And yet God tells him what in verse 11? Take courage, Paul. The facts about me, you you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You have done what you were supposed to do, even though you are in the courts and in trouble for it. You have done what you were supposed to do, and you will get to Rome. In other words, no matter what comes against you, no matter what darkness is standing against you, no matter what evil is seeking to destroy you, you will get where I'm trying to get you. Do you understand that? Paul bore, bore witness to this truth in verse 5 when Paul uses humility to speak respectfully to the high priest. He says, the high priest, you know, um, I'm sorry, the high priest in verse 23, it says, thank you for showing that, brother, appreciate it. And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul initially speaks harshly to the man, not realizing that the man that orders him to be slapped is, in fact, the high priest. And then he pulls back and he says, I wasn't supposed to speak like that to you. I'm supposed to respect you as the, as the authority. I apologize. So he operates with humility. See, he's operating according to God's principles, even though harshness is around him. Why? 
because he realizes that he's waging a war beneath the surface. Verses 6 through 10, Paul uses biblical godly savvy to turn the trial on his head and get the people arguing with one another rather than even dealing with his particular case. He realizes that he has Pharisees and Sadducees in the same room together and that one group believes in the resurrection, the other group doesn't believe in the resurrection. So he says, the only reason I'm here is because I was testifying of the resurrection. And one group says, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And the other group says, well, there's something wrong with that. And then they get to arguing about it. But Paul is using biblical wisdom in order to articulate this. And even through all of that, he, he's on the verge of being torn apart. And I'm sure through all of that, life was hard. But yet the words were present. Take courage, Paul. You have done what I asked you to do in Jerusalem. And you still will get to Rome. And then after that, you don't hear the voice anymore. Two chapters go by. All sorts of chaos is happening. You don't hear anything. But the promise is there. And so the promise is there. You know the presence is. You know, so see, here's the reality, right? The Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? I will be with you always. Lord, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. The promise is there, so the presence is. Meaning that, that there are times in your life where the Lord does not feel present. But he's there. Carrying you. When you think there's only one set of footprints and those footprints are yours. So let's look at some of the ways in which this plays out. This spiritual evil and this spiritual good, right? You see first in... Verse 12 through 15, the spiritual evil is manifesting itself in the, in this conspiratorial plot. When it was day, let's look together. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who had made, who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the, to the, um, to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Pay attention to the level of commitment being expressed in this assassination attempt. There are 40-plus conspirators at work, and these men are so invested in seeing Paul destroyed and, and, and this movement that Paul is, Paul is behind destroyed that, 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 that they have taken on a special effort to call a special fast where they will not eat and drink anything until the man has been killed. This shows us not only the level of disdain in their hearts for Paul's movement and the level of passion in their hearts for their own movement, but this also shows us that there is an opposition that is beneath the surface of human influence, more spiritual in nature, that motivates men and women to see the gospel destroyed at all costs, to see the gospel opposed on every side. It's not for no, it's not for just random occurrence that Christianity faces the level of opposition that it faces. Globally, you see Christianity opposed in just 
some of the most creative and disheartening and depressing ways. Why? Because there is spiritual evil at work opposing it. Not just simply natural evil at work opposing it. But look at verse 16. It says, now the son of Paul's sister heard of this. Heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions, take this young man to the, to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going, at, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these, of these things. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the end, at the third hour of the day. I'm, I'm sorry, at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Man! Such a random occurrence, right? So glad that that guy just happened to hear that other person talking about they were going to conspire to kill Paul. And he went and got things together and told the the tribune that, hey, this is happening. And they happened to send so many soldiers and so many horsemen and so many spearmen to protect him and defend him. Such a random occurrence. No, no. Spiritual good manifests itself in the everyday moments of our lives. Remember the promise of chapter 23, verse 11. Paul, you've done exactly what you were supposed to do in Jerusalem. You will continue to do what you're supposed to. I mean, you will continue on to Rome. I'm going to get you to Rome. I'm going to get you to Rome. And so that random person that hears that random conversation that goes back and talks to the tribune and shows courage to go back and share this information with the tribune and all of that, all of the, 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 the appointment of these soldiers to protect and guard. Yeah, that all feels random if we're thinking natural, but it is very much God upholding the promise that he made to Paul. One of the ways that spiritual good manifests itself in the everyday is through people. Here we see dutiful people, people like Paul's um, sister's son. So Paul's nephew happens to be in and hear this conversation and go back. So dutiful, courageous, and people that, that love us, God moves and acts and, and responds for us through them. But maybe it's just people that are just doing their jobs, like the soldiers that, that, that the, the tribune employs and he sends and he says, go and protect Paul. These people don't care about Paul. They've been given orders. And so they go. And so God is doing his spiritual work through dutiful people and he's doing his spiritual work through loving and compassionate people. And then he's doing his spiritual work through opportunistic people. Because you see, Claudius, write to Felix. The tribune writes to Felix and he says, verse 25, and he wrote a letter to this effect 
To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. That's a lie. He did not do that. But it's an opportunity to present himself as boastful. I mean, to present himself as doing something good and courageous. He did not do that. Paul was presented to him, but he says, hey, I went after him. I found out and I told him to bring, bring these people in and get this thing situated. And then he goes on and he says, I found that he was being accused about the questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to an ampatris and on the night next day they returned to the barracks letting the horsemen go on with him when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor they presented Paul also before him on reading the letter he asked what province he was from and when he learned that he was from Sicilia he said I will give you I'm sorry Cilicia he said I will give you a hearing when your current when your accusers arrive and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium was it Pratrium, Pratrium, Praetorium, Praetorium? So dutiful people, compassionate people, opportunistic people, all at work, but all being moved by God's hand to uphold God's promise that I will get you to where you're supposed to be. You know, I think about the people in my life. The, 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 there, was a, there was a gentleman that I ran into in Walmart two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. And he was having this conversation with me about a scholarship that I applied for when I was in high school. And he said, man, I tell you, I was in the room with those guys and, the, and those ladies and those gentlemen when they, were, you know, when they were talking about who should get the scholarship. And I was telling them that, man, this kid, there's nobody, nobody uh, on our list is more deserving than this kid. This kid, I'm telling you guys, he's going to work. He's going to work when he gets to college. He's go, he, he comes from a good family, this and that, that and the other. And he's talking about this scholarship. I didn't get the scholarship. I, I got second place, so I got, like, some money, right? But he's talking about it. And I had no idea that there was a man in a room when I was 17 years or 18 years old fighting for me to get a scholarship to go to school. Are you, are you tracking with this? Had no idea. 20 years later, I'm meeting this man like, oh, I had no idea you was even on the board. I had no idea that you even knew me. Had no idea that you were fighting for me. And yet here he was going toe-to-toe with other people saying, hey, this kid needs a scholarship. I remember being in college and, and, and going, through, going to career day. And in career day, they were, we, we were having all these different interviews and interviewing people left and right. And so I, inter, um, I interviewed with this guy from this random company. Have no idea. Don't, I couldn't even tell you the name of the company right now if you ask me. He interviews me on the spot, says, hey, man, we don't have anything. I'll keep your resume, though, and uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it, all right? Six months later, fast forward, I'm on campus for a career fair or, or on campus for career interviews, and the Army Corps of Engineers is on campus, and they interview me. And I leave that interview, and I say, that was a pretty good interview. I think, maybe, hopefully, I don't know, probably won't get the job. Two days later, they called me. 
And they're like, hey, we want to offer you the job. The job. I'm like, man, this is really, really fast. What happened? So I thought, man, I must have really killed that interview. Man, I must, that must have been a really, really special interview. They called me so fast, and they, and they offered me everything that I wanted. What is going on? So I get, to, I get to the Army Corps of Engineers, and I start working. And two months later, I sit down with the chief of my branch. And the chief says, there was a gentleman that I used to work with, and he interviewed you at a career day. And he called me and he said, hey, it's this kid up there. She might be really interested in hiring. He's from Vicksburg. He says he wants to be back home. I don't know. I'll, I'll share his resume with you. You might be interested in hiring him. I had no idea that that random interview I had led to me getting the job that I got and I've been working for the last 20 years. What people in your life has God used to orchestrate his purposes and his plan for you? What people in your life that you haven't even paid attention to? What people in your life that you don't even know that God has used and orchestrated to get you to the place that he said he wants to get you, to bring you to Rome? gentleman by the name of Greg Durrell invited me to one of, one of a good, one, real good friend of mine, invited me to his church when I was 17 years old. Said, hey, we're doing this play. And I don't know if it's going to be good, but you might want to come check it out. And it was there that I gave my life to the Lord. Greg has, probably still doesn't know how much of an impact he has had on my life, how much he has shaped my life, how much God has used him. But God does spiritual good through the everyday, through the random, through the routine. He's touching people, and those people are touching you and getting you to the place that he, is desi- that he desires for you to be. Open your eyes and look beneath the surface and see the hand of God to see the fingerprints at work in your life. When you look at other ways in which this is showing itself in this text, you can look at verse 2 of chapter 24. It says, after five days, the high priest in verse 1 of Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, and your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout, throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so they bring this lawyer down. As Paul is continuing to go through this trial, they bring this lawyer down to tell us. And the lawyer comes and he begins to lay out a case against Paul. And the case is riddled with lies. Paul is not starting riots. Paul is not a plague. But saints, Paul understands 
that all natural evil has a spiritual source. And so he wages the battles differently. See, how much, nat- how much natural evil do we wage in natural ways? Or how much natural evil done against us do we wage in natural ways? How many times when somebody lies, against, lies on us, we feel like we have to lash out and get them back in a natural way in order to, in order to, in order to win, so to speak? Tertullus, of course, he begins his case like every person. He begins his case with flattery for the judge, and then he begins to fill his case with lies. But Paul, again, speaks in a way that is spiritually inclined. Look at verse 10. It says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul offers a little flattery as well. And then he says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Or tumult. But salt, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. If any of you lacks, uh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Spiritual good, what is one way that God manifests spiritual good? Through people, what's another way? Through godly wisdom. Paul is walking in godly wisdom, speaking with godly wisdom. But it is not simply his wisdom, it is the wisdom from above. And so sometimes God is exercising his or moving on your behalf and moving through you by the wisdom that he has put in you. There are some, there are some situations that you've navigated out of that you had no business navigating out of, but it was based solely on the wisdom that God had injected, that God had planted in you. There's sometimes where you need to stop and pause and ask God for that wisdom Paul is moving in that wisdom, and thus he is defending him. He is making his case in a way that otherwise he wouldn't have been able to make it. Notice that Paul seizes this opportunity to speak the gospel as well. Even while he's defending himself, he seizes the opportunity to make his God known. Why? Because Paul understands that there's a life being lived beneath the surface. And so even when he is defending himself, he is still seizing opportunities to make much of the God that rules over him. 
Spiritual good manifests itself in people. Spiritual good manifests itself in godly wisdom. Spiritual evil manifests itself in trumped-up charges and injustices. Spiritual evil manifests itself in conspiratorial plots and backbiting and backstabbing. But folks, that's life. But if you decide to wage war against those things in the natural way, you'll lose every time. Look at verse 22. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the, tr- the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith. In, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. In desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Spiritual evil manifests itself in every day. How so? With corruption and suffering. Paul is in jail. He stays there in confinement for two extra years. He's invited to come and share the gospel routinely with a man who is hoping that eventually he will pay him off. And so Paul is suffering. Paul is faced with a corrupt leader, and yet, and yet, spiritual evil is met with spiritual good. How? With Paul sharing the gospel on every occasion that he's given. So here's, here's the reality. We live for the glory of God. That's why we exist. We live to make him famous. We live to make him known. And so the spiritual good that is operating beneath the surface on your behalf is meant to get you to what you live for. It's meant to get you to why you exist. What do I mean by that? I mean the, 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 the fingerprints of God and, and, and the, man, the man that I didn't even know was fighting for me to get a scholarship and the fingerprints of God that was at work getting me a job with the Corps of Engineers. It it wasn't just meant so that I would have a decent job. And it wasn't just meant so that I would have a little money in school. It was meant so that ultimately it would lead me to offering more glory to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was meant so that it would ultimately lead me to having a stronger gospel witness to share with the world. Paul is making these defenses. Paul, even though he's facing all sorts of lies and persecution, even though, even though he's facing trumped-up charges, even though he's facing corruption and suffering, Paul is still being carried by God through the routine and the mundane and the everyday why so that he can have moments like this with Felix to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the leaders of Rome and to make Christ known 
to get the gospel where it's supposed to be, to ensure that the glory of God continues to spread throughout the world. That's why all the smaller moments are happening for him. And so God is orchestrating this, right? He's putting people in your life. He's putting you in places. He's showering you with wisdom. Are you asking the questions, right? Are you looking back on your life and saying, okay, Lord, why'd you do this? And why'd you do that? And why'd you put me here? And why, why'd you put me there? Why am I at this church and not that church? Why am I at this job and not this, the other job? Why do I have these passions that I have? Why do I have this particular ambition to do this particular thing versus that? And I can tell you, ultimately, here's the answer. I have the answer. It's to, it's to shine for his glory. It's to live fully in accordance to his will. It's to ensure that his gospel is to deli- be delivered in whatever context that you exist in, in whatever, in whatever life, whatever lives that are surrounding you. That's why he's orchestrating all that he's orchestrating and placing you in the places that he's placing you. And so you have to understand that everything that's happening up here in this natural, that there, that there, is, that there is something happening down here beneath that that God is orchestrating for the purposes of being, bringing glory to his own name. All these moments are for divine purposes, saints. All these moments are for the gospel to advance. All these moments are for God's glory to shine brighter in and through you. All these moments are for his will to be done in your life. And so let us open our eyes. Amen. Let us open our eyes and let us see what God is doing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you.